congregation. The text for this morning's sermon is the last passage we read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, which is the letter to the church of Pergamum. And after the proclamation of God's word, let us respond in song. Let us sing from Psalm 35, the stanzas 1, 2, and 9. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, compromise. We probably have all heard this word before. To compromise is is to accommodate someone else. It's to meet someone else halfway. It's to come to a happy medium with them. Now in everyday life there are things... On which we may compromise. Not all compromise is wrong. For example, when, when trying to decide on what color to paint one's living room, one should be able to compromise with one's spouse. You would like to have brown colored walls, she would like white colored walls. And then you come to a compromise of, of taupe colored walls. Also, when trying to decide on what kind of car to buy, one should be able to compromise. You would like a Chev, she would like a Ford, and then you compromise and you buy a Volkswagen. Yes, how often, how often are we not on such practical matters of life rather stubborn and and uncompromising? Everything we think has to go one way and that it is our way. And yet, when it comes to the really important things of life, how often and how quick do we not often compromise? And then who do we compromise with? Well, with the world. The very things which God says we cannot compromise on, we we seem so eager to do. For we want the best of both worlds, of believing in God And enjoying the sinful pleasures of this world. And then so much, so much for working with the antithesis which God has established between the church and the world. And yes, once we lose sight of this antithesis, this razor sharp division that he has established. Then we end up dragging the world into the church and we are undone. In fact, we can still be sitting here in church on Sunday is having compromised our faith in the rest of the week. This is what was happening in the church of Pergamum. Some in their midst were guilty of this, of playing down the difference between the church and the world, of of blurring the antithesis which God has established. They compromised themselves. And this is the situation which Jesus Christ our Lord addressed in his letter then to this church. Yes, he who is that sharp, double-edged sword teaches the church then and also now about the importance of not compromising. Yes, for maintaining that sharp distinction between her and the worlds. And so God's word then comes to you this morning summarized under this theme. Our Lord God calls his church to make no compromise with the worlds. 
We'll listen first to his commendation, then his concern, and then lastly to his comfort. I repeat, our Lord God calls his church to make no compromise with the world. We'll pay attention first to his commendation, then his concern, and then lastly to his comfort. Miss beloved, the, the Apostle John also wrote a very brief letter addressed to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ in the great city of Pergamum. Now where was this church, and for that matter, this, this great city? Now to find this city of Pergamum, one would have to head up north, go up the coast of Asia Minor from, from the great city of Smyrna, and yet some 60 kilometers up the coast of the Aegean Sea, one would come to a river valley. And then one would have to go up that river valley some 15 kilometers. you go away from the coast. And then one would come towards the great city of Pergamum. And as one walked toward this city, one would be impressed by the sight of it. There rising over this river valley was a cone-like hill, a hill made of black granite. And this hill was some 300 meters high. And it was a citadel, it was a fortress. This was the heart of Pergamum. In fact, this is what Pergamum means, citadel, fortress. And from this citadel, from this fortress, the city then had a command over a very large area around it. And yes, around and on this hill then would you would find the most impressive buildings of Pergamum. The temples, the library, the public buildings. Indeed, Pergamum was a, a strong, beautiful, cultured, well-known city. Now, Pergamum was well known for several reasons. For starters, Pergamum was well known for its own paper-making industry. Parchment paper was made in Pergamum, made from animal skins. Oh yes, paper could have been made from papyrus coming out of Egypt. But paper or parchment could also be made from animal skins, skins which had been scraped and treated and so when they couldn't get papyrus out of Egypt and the city of Pergamum made their own paper, they made parchment. And Pergamum was well known for her parchment. And then with the making of parchment also came the making of books. Pergamum was also well known for its large library. A library of more than 250,000 books. And for that time, this was impressive. This was a time before the invention of the printing press. In fact, Pergamum had the second largest library in the ancient world, second only to the great library in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. And yes, with such an important library, then Pergamum was also an important center of education, of learning. And then Pergamum was also well known for her religions. For her many gods and temples. No less than five gods were worshipped there in Pergamum. Zeus, Athene, Asclepius, Dionysius, and also the Roman Emperor. It was up on the hill looking over the city. Then were the great temples of these well-known gods. 
as there was Zeus. He was the main god. Worshipped as the father of all the other gods. Worshipped as a creator of the universe. As many people prayed to Zeus if they were looking for good weather. If they needed help in their family life. Then there was also the goddess Athene. The goddess of protection. When people were traveling. As they sought out Athene for the good care they needed along the way. Then there was also Dionysius, the god of wine. You could say the god of parties. And Dionysius was also connected in that respect to the work guilds. Yes, you needed to be a member of the many guilds in, in Pergamum if you were to have a job, if you were to work, if you were to have a life, you would say. And yes, when your guild, when your trade got together, then you, you would worship Dionysius. And then part of the worship of Dionysius would be, yes, to have a, a big party, which ended up often being a big drunken sex orgy. And then there was also Slipius, the snake god of helium. You still find his symbol in use today. Part of the symbol of medical doctors is the snake, the serpent. Now there was a huge temple for this god also in Pergamum. A temple, and you would say, full of snakes. And people would come to the temple of this god for healing and since this was such an important god in the city, the symbol of the snake could be found throughout the city. And then last and not least was the Roman emperor. He was worshipped as a god. And Rome as a goddess. And as far as politics, military life were concerned... Each Roman Caesar was worshipped as Lord and Savior. And so you could say that the imperial cult was a very powerful force in the city. In fact, Pergamum was well known for its, its government. It was the official capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Yes, it would be in Pergamum that you would find the Roman governor. Yes, on behalf of imperial Rome... This governor had the right to, to execute justice. He had the power of the sword to decide who would live and who would die. Yes, he who could give that official command to put someone to death. He could impose the death penalty. Think only of that other Roman, Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Yes, and it was at his command that our Lord Jesus Christ was put to death. Now in this great and powerful city, this well-known city, was also the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing is really known about how this church was established, yet by the time the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, there was a church, a church of our, our Lord in this city. And so, yes, then the Apostle John writes also a letter to the angel, that is, to the minister of the church of Pergamum. And he writes, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Indeed, these are, are the words not just of the Apostle John, but more importantly, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, he is the one who has here a sharp sword, a double-edged sword. And so we're also told in Revelation 1. Yes, there it says that out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came a sharp double-edged sword. 
And so really, beloved, it was not the Roman governor who had ultimate authority over who would live and who would die. Rather, as as John writes here, it is our Lord Jesus Christ who has this ultimate authority on this and for that matter other matters. Yes, it is our Lord Jesus Christ who has all power and authority in heaven above and here on earth below. He is indeed the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Yes, he is indeed the ruler of the kings of the earth, ruler over Roman Caesars, Roman governors. Actually, actually they receive their power, they receive their authority from our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we read there in in Romans 13. Their power, their authority is limited. They're subject to our Lord Jesus Christ. For yes, he alone has unlimited power and authority. He is truly sovereign over all. Yes, all who rule here on earth will be called before him one day to give account for what they have and have not done. Yes, also for when they wrongly use their swords, when they wrongly use their power, their authority against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. For that's what was happening there in Pergamum. As the Lord Jesus said to this church, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Indeed, Jesus Christ, our omniscient Jesus Christ, knows where the believers lived. They lived in Pergamum, where Satan had his throne. Satan had his throne in this great, wealthy, and important ruling city. For remember, there in Pergamum, on that throne-like hill, were all these temples for all these gods, a temple for Zeus, for Dionysius, Athena, and so forth. Yes, also even for the snake god, the serpent god. No doubt this last god, the serpent god, reminded them of Satan. For he is called in Revelation 12, yes, the snake, the serpent. Indeed, it is Satan who stood behind the worship of this God, and not just behind the worship of the snake God, but also behind the worship of all these other gods. Yes, even behind the worship of the Roman emperor. Oh yes, Pergamon, a whole host of gods. And actually all these gods got along just fine. There was no conflict between these gods at all. None of these gods there in, in Pergamon demand that that he or she be worshipped only. It really all depended on you. What you needed. And when you needed it. And so you would turn to the God who could help you with your needs in a particular situation. And you can see in this way that Satan was, was very tolerant. He was okay with, with compromise. He didn't mind that the believers there in Pergamum, that they worship the Lord God as, as long, as long as they didn't only worship him. Yes, it was fine with Satan that they came to the Lord God and worship on Sunday, but as long as they worship the other gods during the rest of the week, as long as they burned a little incense to, to Lord Caesar on Monday in order to get that, that permit to build, and as long as they turned to Asclepius, the snake god, for medical help on, on Tuesday when they had that, that doctor's appointment. And as long as they joined one of those trade guilds in order to get a job. 
and so worshipped Dionysius on Friday and got hammered at one of his parties? If they didn't compromise in this way, giving each god their due, well then, yeah, then they could be dragged before the Roman governor and they could be punished. In fact, they could lose everything they owned. They could even be exiled as the Apostle John had been exiled. In fact, they even could be put to death, as we'll hear about shortly. And so you see, Satan had his throne in this city. He was the one who really dominated the city of Pergamon. He controlled all the activities, the life of this city. You could say it was Satan who stood behind the powers of the day. He stood behind the ungodly power of Rome. Beyond all those ungodly powers, be they political or military or, or scientific or educational or medical powers. If you needed good medicine, well, you had to bow down before the snake got. If you wanted to have a good time with your friends, then you went to the temple of Dionysius. If you wanted protection from harm, you acknowledged Caesar as Lord. And also today, is it really any different? Satan is okay with us and we compromise. He doesn't mind it if we worship our Lord God here on Sundays as, as long as we don't only worship him during the rest of the week. Oh, he's fine with us coming together and praising him and listening to sermons. But as long as we worship the other gods during the rest of the week, as long as during the week we also bow down before the god Mammon and sacrifice our marriage and family on his altar, as long as we also don't think too much of going to, to wild parties in the weekend and get completely sloshed, he actually likes it when we have one foot in the church and the other foot in the world. And so Satan would have us here and also in the world. He really has us where he wants us. Yes, appearing to be very religious. Going, yes, to church, maybe even twice on Sunday. And yet really for the rest of the other days of the week, living no different. Beloved, would our Lord Jesus Christ be able to commend us for what we do away from the worship service during the week? Or say on the weekends? Beloved, the Lord Jesus commended the church of Pergamum. He says, the Lord Jesus says of this church, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Yes, the church of Pergamum had remained faithful in the face of satanic persecution. Oh yes, everyday life would have been much easier for them if they had compromised, if they had joined in the worship of all these other gods, if they had joined in the wild party at the temple of Dionysius, if they had offered a little incense there in the temple of Caesar. Yet these believers, beloved, they remain true to the Lord's name. You could say the Lord was truly Lord and King of their entire lives of their marriages, of their families, of their health, of their jobs, of their fun and entertainment, is in this respect they remain true and faithful to his word and spirits. 
They refused to take back their faith in Jesus Christ, to renounce their faith in him. No, instead they held fast to their Savior, even, yes, even in the face of death. For as the Lord Jesus says here, they did not renounce their faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now who was Antipas? Nothing more is known about him other than that he was a fellow believer. He was a fellow believer who was wrongly put to death and most certainly by the edge of the, of the Roman sword. Here was a fellow churchman, a fellow believer who died for his faith in Jesus Christ. He was willing to die rather than deny his faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and King. And so you see, Satan was active. He was at work here. He was behind this deadly persecution. And yet, and yet we may believe, we may confess that really it is our Lord Jesus Christ who is truly sovereign. He is the one who is ultimately in control. And he too is also at work here. And he is the one who gives the power, who gives the strength to remain faithful. He makes us be able to not renounce our faith in him, to persevere even in the face of death. For, beloved, the same satanic attack is there today. How many Christians today face persecution? Yes, severe persecution. How many are even being persecuted unto death? Think of our fellow believers in, in Muslim and Hindu and, and communist countries. They refuse. They refuse to divide their lives into little compartments and give only a little compartment, a little part to our Lord Jesus Christ. No, they rather confess that, that Jesus Christ is Lord over every part, every component, every compartment of their lives. And then they pay the price for this. They suffer the loss of income, loss of the job, loss of family and friends, loss even of their lives. Yes, there are many Christians in this world who still die for their faith in Jesus Christ. And what about us? Oh, we too are urged to divide our lives into little compartments. Oh, Satan, the world around us doesn't mind it if we, we give a bit of our life to Jesus Christ. Sundays for worship of the Lord God, sure, that's okay. But if we give our whole life to Jesus Christ, well then Satan, the world around us, becomes impatient with us. And they don't want to put up with this. You can't work on Sunday? Well, you can go to church. Why can't you work? And so you may lose out on, on good income. You may lose out on certain jobs. And so, yes, you don't join in their fun and entertainment. You lose out on friends and fellowship. And yes, we may even have to face human rights tribunal like some people, believing people in Canada have already. Beloved, let us not renounce our faith. Rather, let us acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only Lord of our entire lives. And let us not separate any part of our life from him. Let us not separate our health, 
our financial well-being, our fun and entertainment from him. Let us not make gods of these things. Of course, we, we use medicine when we are sick, but let us not worship medicine as a god. Rather, let us accept it in thankfulness as a gift from our Lord God. Let us realize that without his blessing, this medicine would not help us one bit. And of course, we, we may have fun. We may have entertainment. But let's not worship fun and entertainment as a god. Rather, let us accept it in thankfulness as a gift from our Lord God. And let it not be something that leads us away from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ comes to us this morning. And he comes to us, too, with a sharp, double-edged sword. This is the sword which comes out of his mouth. The sword is his word. And as it says in Hebrews 4 verse 12, this sharp double-edged sword of the word pierces and lays bare the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And yes, this sword of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, in that way makes separations, it shows differences, it shows real differences between Jesus Christ and all these false gods of the world. And the sword of God's word says, Worship God alone. Have no other gods before me. It also says there is then a real difference between the church and the world. And that difference needs to be maintained. There is no place for compromise. With this unbelieving world around us. And that brings us then to our second point. His concern. Yes, while the church of Pergamum stood firm in the face of outright persecution, the death of Antipas, the Lord Jesus Christ still had his concern about this church. As the Lord Jesus said, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Yeah, we hear of Balaam and Balak and the Israelites. Here the Apostle John is referring us back to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, to Numbers 25, which we read from, but also to Numbers 31. And from these passages, we can learn about Balaam and we can learn about Balak and, and all what happened with the people of Israel. And don't we all kind of know the story well? It was Balak, Balak, the king of, of Moab, who hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. He hoped that if Balaam had put a curse on Israel, then he would be able to destroy them in battle. Yet each time, each time that Balaam tried to curse God's people, he actually ended up blessing them. And then as we can read in Numbers 31, Balaam then changed tactics. He changed his approach of attack. And he advised Balak, king of Moab, if you want to conquer Israel, destroy Israel, what you need to do is you need to turn them away from the Lord their God. And yes, Balaam knew exactly how to do this. And he told Balak, have your Moabite women seduce the Israelite men. 
So invite them to their feasts, to their parties, in the honor of their gods, their idols, and especially God Baal Peor. And yes, with these feasts for these gods came excessive eating and drinking, wild partying, dirty dancing, sexual immorality with Moabite women. And then as we read there in Numbers 25, many, yes, many in Israel were made to stumble. They began to fall away from the Lord God. So instead of taking that direct approach of Balaam cursing Israel, Satan tried a more deceptive approach. If you can't get them with a bold offensive, well, then you try the sneaky way. Slowly wear down their defenses so that they hardly notice it. Be subtle, be quiet in your attacks. And, and so, yes, you can see Satan did not attack from the outside. He worked from the inside out. And this is what Satan tried with Israel, the people of God's old covenant. And this is also then what Satan tried with the church of Pergamum, with the God's people of the new covenants. Satan couldn't break down this church by blatant persecution, open persecution. So he tried a different approach. He tried the way of Balaam. And so there were those in the congregation who were promoting the false teaching of Balaam. And those who identified with Balaam were called here then the Nicolaitans. Now the names Balaam and Nicholas both mean the same thing. They mean victor, conquer. And so they both try to conquer God's people by working from within. And here were then the Balaamites or the Nicolaitans you might say who were conquering and so destroying the church from within. They were the ones who were saying so, so softly and quietly it's not so bad if you, you compromise your faith with the world around you. This would be the Nicolaitans who would say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if you go to the feast of the temple of Dionysius? So you get drunk. So you make out with some strange woman. Everyone needs to let their hair down once in a while. And so God's people compromise themselves. They live with one foot in, in the world and one in the church. You could say they were covering all their bases. Yeah, you've got to go to church, but we want to have that other stuff too. And yes, these people lived in the midst of the church. They were in church every Sunday. They appeared to be good Christians. Yeah, don't, don't ask what they did during the rest of the week. When you looked at their lives during the week, you would see that the antithesis, the division between the church and the world was starting to disappear. The clear-cut line between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent was completely breaking down. Their lifestyles is really no different from the world around them. And what about us? We don't need to look at the world. We need to look at ourselves. Take a good hard look at ourselves. How much have we already compromised with respect to our lifestyle during the week. Is our lifestyle really distinct from the world around us? It's different. Different in the way we, way we live. Different in the way we Enjoy fun and entertainment. 
Miss, where do we seek our, our girlfriends, our boyfriends from? Where do we go? Do we go to the bars? Or do we think nothing also of spending hours and hours online or on Facebook, chatting more with strangers than our, than our spouses, our, our family members? How many of us have no big qualms of, about watching movies filled with violence and, and sexual immorality? No big deal, we'd say, for surfing the net for porn. See, no big deal about wasting the boss's time at work. Think little of ripping clients off in business. And I could go on. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ says to the church then, and also now, repent therefore. Otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them, and with the sword of my mouth. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ calls, yes, the whole church of Pergamum to repent. The whole church. Now you might be wondering, why did the whole congregation, the whole church have to repent? Not all the members had compromised themselves with the world. Not everyone is doing that kind of stuff. Get real. Yeah, not all of them had, had met the world halfway. Oh, those who did it, yeah, they, they better repent. They better change their ways. And note well, our Lord Jesus Christ here calls the whole church to repent. For those who had not compromised had not confronted those who had. Indeed, erring members should have been disciplined. There was no, no mutual discipline. You could say the church of Pergamum didn't exercise church discipline. Compromisers were left alone. Faithful members were not admonishing unfaithful members, not calling them to repentance. And that is why the whole congregation was called to repentance. All of them, in each in their own way, had to change their ways. And if there was no change, if there was no daily repentance, then our Lord Jesus Christ said, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Yes, what Jesus Christ was saying was that he would come in just judgment if they didn't repent. Oh, the Lord did come quickly in just judgment on Balaam. Balaam was threatened by the angel of the Lord with a sword. And eventually Balaam was killed by the sword. And many of God's only at that time were also killed by the sword. Here the Lord God threatens those who follow Balaam. He threatens these Nicolaitans with, with his sword. Yes, the sword of, of his words. For eventually he would come in judgment in the church of Pergamon, the whole church. For where is the church of Pergamon today? It's gone. Our Lord Jesus Christ has removed his lampstand from Pergamon. And so also today then we are warned, we're called to repent. Repent from our lack of mutual discipline. Of truly caring for one another and reaching out to one another. And helping one another along in, in everyday life. Yes, where are we in reaching out to those who have made the ungodly compromises with the world around them? 
Do we ever call each other to account, say, for the music we listen to, for the movies we watch, or we just say, well, that's their own business? Do we ever approach one another about the way we use Facebook or the Internet? Or how we do our daily work or how we conduct ourselves in business for the way we treat our spouse or our children, our teenagers? Realize, God calls us to daily repentance, to daily change our ways. True faith in Jesus Christ is also a matter of daily repentance. And realize that if we do not change every day again, then the Lord will come quickly. Let us realize that the sword of the Lord's mouth is a sharp, and it's two-edged cutting both ways to judgment and to salvation, to death and to life. is as the Apostle John writes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, let us really listen. Let us hear the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of his Spirit. Yes, to his word which cuts both ways, to judgment when we don't repent and believe, to salvation when we do repent and believe. Now, beloved, when we repent and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, then we receive incredible comfort from him. And that brings us to our last point. Yes, his comfort. Yes, what comfort does the Lord give his church by his spirit? Well, as the Lord says here, to him who overcomes. Is he speaking here about those who remain faithful? Yes, faithful believers who by the power of God's grace and spirit overcome sin. Indeed, they are the true victors. They are the ones who don't compromise. Who acknowledge our Lord as Lord over every aspect of their lives. And what will he give to those who remain faithful, who come to in true faith and repentance, seeking forgiveness? What will he give them? What will he give us? Well, as the Lord Jesus promises here, I will give them some of the hidden manna. Yes, some of the hidden manna. Manna. From the scriptures, we all know what manna is. That is the bread from heaven. This bread rained down from heaven every morning except on Sunday or Sabbath morning. And the people of Israel is as they made their way through the desert towards the promised land, they received this bread from heaven. It was this miraculous man of this bread from heaven which kept Israel alive through her desert wanderings. Without that manna, Israel would have died in the wilderness. Now some of this manna had been put in a jar and placed before the Lord God in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. And so there was this hidden manna, hidden from the eyes of God's people throughout the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant here, the Lord God promises to give some of the hidden manna. And who or what is this hidden manna? Well, as our Lord Jesus said in, in John 6, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who had given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. And then the Lord Jesus said it. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. 
Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is the manna, the bread from heaven, the bread of life. With him, those who conquer in faith receive eternal life. With him, there is no need for the food and drink offered to the gods. With him, we will never hunger and thirst again. Oh, the world does not see this. It is hidden manna, hidden to unbelievers, revealed to believers. What a wonderful promise. For those who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, we receive this. But there is another thing promised by our Lord here. It says, to him who overcomes, to him who remains faithful, the Lord says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to those who actually receive it. Now this promise is, is more difficult to understand. Many different explanations. In fact, I counted seven different explanations have been given to the meaning of this promise about the white stone. And let's look a little closer then at the last verse of our, of our text. It says here, to the faithful one, the Lord says, I will give a white stone. And just exactly what this means is hard to say. We're told because white stones are given back then for a variety of reasons. And I take this approach in this situation. If you served in, in court jury back then, you were given a white stone and a black stone. And when it came time to vote for the verdict, one could either cast a black or white stone. Black if the person was guilty, white if the person was innocent. And so yes, the white stone would mean acquittal for the one charged with a crime. And in that way, the white stone marked someone out in a special way. It marks someone out as being acquitted of guilt. One declared free of sin. Well, beloved, does not our Lord Jesus Christ acquit us of guilt? Yes, thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ, we, we stand innocent, we stand righteous before our God and Father. Yes, thanks to him, we stand white and pure before him. Yes, also then dressed in white robes, clothed in white robes, washed in the blood of the man. Now there's one more thing here. On that white stone will be a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And understand this, we have to go back to the Old Testament, we have to go back to the prophecy of Isaiah. There the prophet speaks of believers receiving a new name. And you can read it there in Isaiah 62. He said, the nations will see your righteousness and all the kings, your glory, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord gives. And so the Lord God gives his, his faithful servants a new name. We're not talking here about a personal new name. No, we're talking here about the name mentioned later on in Revelation 3 verse 12. That is the name of God. We're going to have his name on us. In fact, we already do. In this way, we know that we are his possession forever. We forever belong to him. What an incredible comfort he gives us. 
As we go through life in this world where there is such a struggle not to compromise, we will belong to him forever. And so let us not compromise with the world around us. Rather maintain that antithesis, that razor sharp division between the world and the church. And let us look to our Lord Jesus Christ for help in this. Let us look for the help of his spirit, the help of his grace. For he knows where you and I live. He knows we live where Satan's throne is. He knows we are surrounded by Satan's power. He knows the satanic attacks we face. And he knows how hard it is not to compromise, not to give in. Yet always remember our Lord Jesus Christ. He faced the same temptations we did. He was tempted in every possible way. There is no temptation which, which you and I struggle that did not confront our Lord Jesus Christ while he was here on earth. Thanks to his victory, thanks to him overcoming the power of sin and Satan, we can go forward. Yes, with his help, we can go forward in faith. And we will receive all what we need to go forward. And so he will indeed feed us, feed us with himself. And he will give us a white stone with a new name written on it. Amen.